The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled How I Think, How I Treat, Assessing, Managing, and Engaging Patients to Optimize Care in SLE and LN, Comparing Approaches with the Experts. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash TSR 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us this morning. Um, this is How I Think, How I Treat, Assessing, Managing, and Engaging Patients to Optimize Care in Lupus and Lupus Nephritis. So today's panelists will be me. I'm Maureen McMahon uh, from UCLA. Uh, this is Dr. Kenneth Kalunian from UCSD and Dr. Maria Delera from UCSF. So just to give you a little bit of an idea of what we'll cover today, um, I'm going to talk about lupus and lupus nephritis, my thoughts on diagnosis and assessment. Uh, Dr. Kalunian will then talk about what he thinks about optimizing treatment decisions for, treatment, for individual patients with lupus. And Dr. Delera will talk about what she thinks about optimizing treatment decisions for individual patients with lupus nephritis. So just to get us started, lupus is a complex autoimmune disease. Um, and I think that one of the most difficult things uh, to make the diagnosis and to figure out individual treatment plans is that it can really affect any organ in the body. And every individual patient really has different manifestations. Now, it can affect people of all ages, including children. Uh, but the peak time uh, of diagnosis is women in their childbearing uh, years, between the ages of 15 to 44. Now, we know that women are affected much more commonly than men. On average, it's about nine women for every one male that's diagnosed, but that can range from between four and 12 women to every one male. We know that lupus affects minority groups and minority racial and ethnic groups differently, uh, with a higher prevalence in black and African-American patients, Hispanic patients, Asian patients, and patients of American Indian and Alaska Native descent. And unfortunately, we know that among chronic inflammatory diseases in young patients, especially young women between the ages of 15 and 24, it's the leading cause of death with higher rates of death than even diabetes or HIV. So this is some work that was done by my colleagues at UCLA, Eric Yen and Ramraj Singh. Um, and when they looked at the CDC registry, they found that lupus was the fifth most common cause of death in black and Hispanic females in the 15 to 24 age group, compared to seventh overall for all female patients. And when they looked at patients in the 25 to 34 year old age group, lupus was the sixth most common cause of death in black and Hispanic females. So here you can really see that the prevalence is different uh, in different patients of racial and ethnic, ethnic backgrounds. Uh, you can see that the overall prevalence of lupus in white females is about 150 per 100,000 cases. Um, it's a higher prevalence in patients of Hispanic, Latin, or Spanish origin. Uh, higher prevalence, again, in American Indian or Alaskan natives. And again, even higher in Asian American and black patients. We also know that lupus disproportionately affects patients in lower socioeconomic status. So you can see some data here uh, that shows that among patients in the Medicaid database, the highest prevalence of lupus and lupus nephritis was in those who were in the lowest socioeconomic status. And that's even after adjusting for things like age, race, and ethnicity.
So we know that when we diagnose lupus patients early and get them on more effective treatments at an early time point, we can really reduce the overall damaging effects of lupus and ultimately improve our qual uh, patient's quality of life. Um, unfortunately, when we look at predictors um, that will ultimately lead to greater rates of damage accrual and even death, we know that poor access to care, late diagnosis, um, using less effective treatments, and poor adherence to those treatments really increases the risk that patients will go on to have adverse outcomes. Now, unfortunately, lupus not only affects patients physically, but it can also affect their mental health and also their social functioning. And all of those things can ultimately affect quality of life. Um, but I know that if I were to poll a room full of my patients and ask them um, if they're, what they are most concerned about with their lupus, um, it wouldn't necessarily be the same things I was concerned about. I'm always worried about preventing organ damage, preventing kidney failure. But to my patients, the, one of the most debilitating symptoms is their fatigue. Um, and we know that fatigue can really negatively affect the quality of life of patients. Um, we also know that there's a higher rate of disability in lupus patients, and the longer that patients have their lupus uh, diagnosis, the less likely they are to, to continue to be part of the workforce. So as I mentioned earlier, lupus can uh, be very difficult to diagnose because of its heterogeneity. And you can really have manifestations in almost any area of the body, as you can see here. But of course, some of the most common things that we see are constitutional symptoms, uh, including fatigue, but also fevers, weight loss. Uh, patients also frequently have cutaneous and mucosal complications, including rashes, oral and nasal ulcerations. And of course, arthritis is also a very common complaint. So what are some of the, the things that patients will say to me that will make me suspect a diagnosis of lupus? Well, certainly if they mention any constitutional symptoms that we talked about. Um, also, if they talk about having photosensitivity. And when we think about photosensitive rashes, we really think about um, actual rashes that develop with sun exposure and not just redness that you would get with a, with a sunburn, et cetera. Um, painful oral or nasal ulcers, hair loss, especially hair loss that's patchy uh, and or occurs in the frontal or peripheral regions, uh, Raynaud's, arthritis, uh, dyspnea or pleuritic chest pain that might be suggestive of serositis, um, any chest pain uh, that might be suggestive of pericarditis, lower extremity edema, miscarriages, uh, any neurologic symptoms, and in particular seizures or psychosis. And of course, it's always important to think about some of the medications that can be associated with drug-induced lupus, such things as hydralazine or isoniazid. So on physical exam, um, there are also some, some features that might point me to our diagnosis of lupus. Um, so certainly any of the skin lesions that I mentioned, um, when a patient has alopecia, um, oral or nasal pharyngeal ulcers, um, symmetric arthritis, polyarthritis, uh, with swollen and tender joints on exam. Um, any patient who has any uh, lung findings, including uh, evidence of a pleural effusion, pneumonitis, or interstitial lung disease, uh, and lower extremity edema and hypertension. So when a patient does present to me, um, or when I'm following a patient for lupus, these are some of the basic laboratory things um, that we use to follow our patients. Um, so certainly I'll get a, a complete blood count, comprehensive metabolic panel. Um, I always check a urinalysis in my patients, including a urine protein creatinine ratio. Um, I'll often look for inflammatory markers, such as sedimentation rate. 
Um, initially, I'll check a direct Coombs test and serologic tests. And then on a routine basis, I'll follow patients with double-stranded DNA testing uh, and complement levels. And in any patient who has symptoms suggestive of myositis, I'll check a creatinine uh, phosphokinase as well. So we do have some uh, 2019 updated criteria uh, for the classification of lupus. Um, and I do say classification of lupus. These criteria are really meant to classify patients for the purposes of things like clinical trials. Um, but I do think that we can kind of use them also as a framework when we're thinking about diagnosing patients. Um, so the 2019 criteria, um, do, is, it is a weighted system, and so you do, as we'll see, you do weight different uh, disease manifestations um, depending on a, on a point system. And all patients must have 10 or more points to be classified as having lupus. Um, now, one thing that's unique about these uh, 2019 criteria is that you really have to have a positive ANA to even think about making the diagnosis of lupus with these criteria. So a negative ANA, uh, the patient would automatically not be classified as having lupus based on these 2019 criteria. Um, one other thing to mention is that when you're thinking about these criteria, if a patient presented to you at their last visit with a malar rash, um, and they come in this time, and the malar rash is gone, but they have a symmetric polyarthritis, um, you would continue to, to count the malar rash towards the classification criteria. So things don't need to be present simultaneously. So this is a busy slide. I'm not going to go over all of these details. Um, but I do want to point out that we do have three different classification criteria for lupus. So there's the 2019 criteria over to your right um, that, I, that we've been talking about. There's also kind of the traditional ACR criteria that I learned um, when I was a med medical student. Um, and then also we have the uh, 2012 SLIC criteria. Um, so there are many similarities between these classification criteria, um, but there's a few differences that I'll point out. Um, in the SLIC criteria, um, there's an expansion of the different kinds of rashes that can be used to help to classify lupus patients. Um, so in the original criteria, it was just malar rashes, photosensitivity, and discoid rashes. The SLIC criteria really think about dividing patients into any kind of acute rash, and you know, you'd consider malar rash photosensitivity, but also things like sub, subacute cutaneous lupus. Um, and then you also think about different chronic type of rashes, such as discoid lesions or paniculitis. Um, and similarly, in the uh, 2019 ACR Euler criteria, again, you can think about acute cutaneous lupus or uh, subacute cutaneous lupus. Um, arthritis, serositis, renal manifestations are largely uh, counted the same way, although you'll notice that if you're looking uh, at both the SLIC and the ACR Euler criteria, if you do have a patient who has just an ANA antibody and does have biopsy-proven nephritis, those patients can be classified as having lupus. Uh, Neurologic symptoms, again, were expanded in the uh, SLIC 2012 criteria um, from just seizures and psychosis, um, and additionally delirium in the 2019 ACR Euler criteria. And then for hematologic uh, um, manifestations, uh, in the SLIC criteria and in the ACR Euler criteria, those are, are, have different weighted point systems. Uh, but one other thing I'd like to point out, if you're using the 2019 weighted ACR Euler criteria, you really only count the manifestation that scores the highest number of points. So for instance, if you had a patient who had leukopenia and thrombocytopenia, you'd count the, the four points for the thrombocytopenia.
Uh, and then finally, we do count immunolo immunologic criteria as well, um, including the presence of anti-DNA antibodies or anti-Smith antibodies, uh, anti-phospholipid antibodies. Um, with the uh, more recent criteria, you can also count the presence of anti-beta-2 glycoprotein antibodies, and uh, you can also count the presence of hypocomplementemia. So, of course, there's a broad differential when you have that patient who initially presents to you. Um, I generally will think about all the different types of connective tissue diseases, including uh, rheumatoid arthritis or even an overlap between rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. Um, I think about many of the other uh, autoimmune connective tissue diseases that we see. I also think about infection, um, malignancies, um, and also fibromyalgia. So what kind of specific diagnostic tests do we use for rheumatic diseases? Um, well, one of the things that we order frequently when a patient has joint symptoms is a rheumatoid factor uh, and anti-CCP or anti-citrullinated uh, anti peptide antibodies. Um, now, we know that the rheumatoid factor is not specific for rheumatoid arthritis, although it is present in approximately 80% of patients. Um, the CCP antibody may be more specific and more sensitive than the rheumatoid factor, and that's also present in approximately 80% of patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Um, so the ANA antibody, um, I've mentioned that it would be very rare to ever make a diagnosis of lupus without a patient having a positive ANA antibody. Um, but it does not make the diagnosis in and of itself because we know that um, in various studies, if you look across the population, up to 20 to 30 percent of people can have low-level positive antibodies at titers of about 1 to 80. Um, so again, you need to have that ANA to make the diagnosis, but the, that ANA alone does not make a diagnosis. Um, now, we do start to get more and more specific, uh, suspicious the higher the, hi the ANA antibody titer that we see. Um, you can see here, uh, antiphospholipid antibodies I mentioned are part of the diagnostic criteria for lupus, um, but they are associated, of course, with an increased risk of thrombosis, um, and in particular, the highest risks uh, seen among patients who have the lupus anticoagulant. Um, but it's important to remember that these antibodies can be associated with other uh, disease manifestations as well, including valvular disease, um, lividoreticularis, thrombocytopenia, um, and a higher risk as well of hemolytic anemia and renal impairment. So I always screen my patients for renal involvement, um, in particular in the first five years of the disease, but even uh, continuing at regular intervals. Um, I'll check a urinalysis at every visit, um, examining the urinary sediment, and also uh, looking for urinary protein excretion. Um, in general, I'll usually do that with a spot protein creatinine ratio. Um, I also monitor patients um, with every lab evaluation for their double-stranded DNA titers and their complement levels. Um, and those can either help to point out uh, active lupus flare if you see higher DNA and lower complement levels. Um, but if I see a patient who's been doing well and had negative DNA, uh, anti-DNA, and normal complements who all of a sudden presents just with those changes in their laboratory features, I may watch that patient a little bit more closely, um, being worried that those might be preceding a, a lupus flare. Now, how often I, I test patients does depend on how the patient's been doing, how long they have lupus, and whether or not they have a previous history of renal involvement. Um, and usually, uh, I, most of my patients will follow with me as a rheumatologist.
So one of the things that I've been interested in is cardiovascular disease and lupus. And that interest um, came to me when I saw a young patient in her 20s who had had lupus since she was a teenager uh, who presented uh, with chest pain um, and ultimately ended up having a myocardial infarction. So that really brought home to me um, what we know from the literature, which is that patients with lupus have a significantly increased risk of developing cardiovascular disease, and that risk is particularly seen even at patients in, who are at a younger age who you wouldn't typically think of as being at risk. Um, so certainly we know that the traditional uh, Framingham risk factors are at play in patients. Um, we know that many of um, features of lupus uh, can, can contribute, as well as many of the side effects of some of our treatments, um, can increase risk of diabetes, hypertension, uh, dyslipidemia, et cetera. But in addition, there are very likely some lupus-specific features, um, including the inflammation due to lupus, that can lead to things such as dysfunctional lipids, um, elevated homocysteine, and elevated lipid levels, which have all been associated with an increased risk in lupus patients. Um, so at this point, we don't have a lupus-specific uh, targeted treatment to help prevent cardiovascular disease. And so we really just focus on the modifiable traditional risk factors. Um, certainly, if any patients smoke, we should encourage them to stop, stop smoking and to control hypertension, dyslipidemia, um, diabetes, and of course, always encourage patients to exercise. So as we think about the development of lupus, I think we're realizing that there is a preclinical stage where tolerance is broken by some trigger uh, in the environment. Um, and once that tolerance is broken, patients start to develop autoantibodies. And then ultimately, with that background, they start to develop clinical symptoms. And it's at that time which, where we actually can make a diagnosis. Then, of course, different patients go on to have an, uh, their own individual disease courses, um, but these can uh, include having recurrent flares. Some patients will continue to have chronic symptoms throughout without periods of quiescence in between, um, and some patients will just continue to have progressive organ damage. And ultimately, patients, we hope, will go into remission or have resolution of their symptoms, but some patients will go on to have end organ damage, uh, go on to uh, have dialysis or death. So when I think about monitoring my patients, again, um, when I think about uh, how to frame their overall disease course, I think about their disease activity, um, and that includes their chronic activity and how often and frequently they're having flares. Um, I also think about the disease severity, whether their symptoms are mild, moderate, really affecting uh, the quality of their life, or even threatening uh, their organs. Uh, and finally, I think about damage. And damage in lupus is a little bit different. Damage, when we, when we talk about damage in lupus, that can include damage from lupus itself. Um, so end-stage renal disease, uh, things like having a, a pulmonary embolism, those would all be lupus-related damage. But we also think about damage that can occur as a consequence of our treatments. Um, so any, uh, in particular, we think about uh, steroid-related consequences, such as cataracts, uh, developing diabetes, avascular necrosis, et cetera.
Um, now, we won't go into all of the different disease uh, activity indices that we have available. Um, most of these are really used as research tools or for research purposes. Um, but I would say that in some cases, um, you could use uh, probably most commonly in clinic pr clinical practice would be the SLEDE, uh, which is a disease activity score that has 24 different items um, and can show some improvement in disease activity. Another commonly used tool in clinical trials is the BILAG, uh, which is a 96-question um, uh, tool. So not so helpful in clinical practice, um, but it is uh, one of the disease activity measures around which the clinical trial metrics um, that you see in, in, when you read uh, lupus clinical trials um, is frequently used. So again, we think about disease flares uh, in lupus patients um, as being one of our, our target uh, treatments, our target for treatment. Um, and when I talk to my patients about their lupus, many patients will tell me that they can learn to deal with some of the chronic symptoms, um, but it's the unpredictability of the disease flares that really makes living with lupus quite difficult sometimes. Um, patients don't know when a flare is coming. It makes it hard to plan uh, for family activities or for work activities, et cetera. Um, so, again, uh, when there's not exactly a consensus on what constitutes a flare, um, but most of the time when we think about disease, when we talk about disease flare, it's showing an increased disease activity in some of those disease metrics that we were just discussing. Um, and we usually think about flares as being mild uh, or moderate to severe. Um, and, and again, usually when we think of it, whether or not you make a change in actual treatment, it's usually symptoms that are severe enough or uh, would warrant a change in your therapy. So finally, let's talk about a typical patient who might walk into my office. Uh, so this is a 28-year-old woman. Um, she presents with a malar rash, oral ulcers, She's got uh, joint pains with arthritis, uh, swelling and tenderness in the wrists and in the small joints of her hands. Uh, she has a positive ANA at a titer of 1 to 160, a positive DNA antibody, and a positive Smith, um, but normal complements. So again, many of these features would make me suspect lupus in this patient. Um, and I think if you went back to any of the classification criteria that we discussed, um, you could see that she would uh, qualify with uh, points for her ANA. So she would qualify to, to, to be looked at for a diagnosis of, diagnosis of lupus in any of the classification criteria. Um, also the malar rash, oral, ulcer, uh, oral ulcers, and arthritis as well as the immunologic features uh, would all fit into that classification criteria. Um, so if I saw this patient walk into my office, I would make a diagnosis of lupus, um, and I would likely start her um, on uh, hydroxychloroquine, um, as we'll, we'll hear about uh, treatments from Dr. Kalunian. Um, and I would also uh, probably put her on a low dose of prednisone just to help control some of her features. And with that, we'll turn it over to Dr. Kalunian. Thanks, Maureen. It's a pleasure to be here today. Um, I'm going to uh, sort of give my, uh, my view of um, how we can optimize treatment decisions for patients like the one that uh, Maureen just put on Plaquenil. So with um, that in mind, um, there are lots of challenges in, in treating patients for lupus. Um, and the way I characterize that these um, challenges are the fact that this is a, a disease that has a very unpredictable disease course. It's characterized by disease flares and periods of quiescence, and we have really no good predictors of, 
um, or at least reliable predictors of telling us how the patient's really going, which is why we typically see our patients routinely at a minimum of uh, quarterly visits in, in my practice. And uh, with that, we can you know, really examine the patient, delve into how their life is um, impaired by their lupus and why, and also um, to check labs that don't often associate with clinical symptoms, such as renal manifestations of disease. Um, there are so many different symptoms affecting multiple organs, and these symptoms can often, as Dr. McMahon has pointed out, be very nonspecific and, and, uh, and um, very confusing. Um, and it really makes the identification of attribution to lupus hard. Um, there's been um, also a, a large concern about, among rheumatologists to actually treat to avoid damage. And that's really been sort of shepherded by studies recently from a European cohort that showed that um, lupus patients over um, age uh, 17 have been found to have damage in a very high percentage of, of, of that cohort, like around 60%. And particularly renal failure, which I know um, Dr. Delara is going to talk about, it was seen in 84 to 21%, depending on the, um, the different, uh, different regions of, of the cohort. So this is a, a real difficult disease to get a handle on in terms of predicting what is the best, uh, you know, when the patient's in your office, predicting what the best uh, approach is to tackle um, their not only disease symptoms at the time, but also to control their damage. What I'd like to do now is sort of talk about how I approach cutaneous manifestations of disease and then talk about articular manifestations of disease, knowing that there's a lot of, um, of um, overlap between these two. But there are some patients who present primarily with cutaneous manifestations. So for that, I, I really uh, focus on several things. I, I talk about how to avoid the sun, really educating the patients about the need for protection. And we spend a lot of time talking about that. We don't just say you need to you know, wear a hat but we talk about really how to change your lifestyle in terms of maybe not just putting on sunscreen, but reapplying several times during the day. Um, I run with a dermatologist at UC San Diego, um, a joint room derm clinic, which has been very um, sort of interesting for me to understand little nuances that I never thought of. Um, for example, um, many patients come in with sun sensitivity on the left arm. Why? Because they're driving a lot. It happens in California. Um, and um, so what we tell them is to actually try to modulate that and share, have shared driving responsibilities with their, with their spouse or their, or their partner, if that's possible. Obviously, in a commute, that's not um, always positive, but on the weekends, yeah, so little things like that. So my, my therapeutic approach to cutaneous lupus is really um, sort of divided into whether patients have localized disease or widespread disease. Um, and for localized disease, what I tend to do is use topical corticosteroids in the beginning to get a quick boost like, like Maureen does with, uh, with her patients to, when she's starting them on um, therapies in general to really get that boost going, but then also put them on hydroxychloroquine 
I actually, I put everybody on it, no matter who they are, unless they have a contraindication um, to it, with retinal screening, of course. And retinal screening, in my, in my eyes, should be done at yearly intervals. Um, and then if that's, and that's pretty effective in about 50% of patients, there are not merely any long-term studies that have looked at really how much we capture with that approach, but it's about, um, you get an, a, a relatively adequate response in about 50% of patients. And then if you, if you have a patient who doesn't respond to that for localized disease, then I'll add a um, topical calcineuric inhibitor such as tacrolimus. And for that, I get about another 10% um, effect from that. So we're still at 60%, and there's a defined, in my mind, um, unmet need of about 40%. For widespread disease, um, I tend to use the same approach, but if I don't get a good response um, quickly, relatively quickly, I'll add a new agent. And this slide that's up here is what we did about seven years ago. And as, as I go through my slides, you'll see that we've made a lot of advances. Um, quinacrine was what we did 10 years ago when it was available, but it's just becoming available in limited, um, in limited quantities now. It's uh, only manufactured um, in India where there's an embargo um, both ways, in and out of India. Um, and, um, and then if the patient is getting a good response, we keep them on that therapy. So the similar approach to, um, to uh, localized disease. But the problem is we have this approximate 40% unmet need. For musculoskeletal manifestations of disease, classically we use hydroxychloroquine. And again, similar to the cutaneous manifestations of disease, we get an approximate 50% um, response. Not complete in all patients, but on average, about 50% of people respond. Um, we've used methotrexate, which, um, as we all know, inhibits DNA synthesis and increases uh, release of adenosine. It's a drug that we have a lot of experience from in rheumatoid arthritis, and it does tend to work in um, patients with lupus. But remember, these are patients who are often young. Many of them are in college. Realistically, they're exposed to alcohol, and I really give them the riot act in terms of not being able to drink. It also has liver toxicity and teratogenic toxicity, so this isn't an ideal drug. Um, and again, um, I really only get about a 10 to 15% boost over the 50% that I get from Plaquenil. We've tried azathioprine, uh, we've tried mycophenolate, mofetil, luplidomide, and none of these agents are blockbuster hits. Occasionally we'll get a good response when we change the patient from methotrexate to one of these other agents when they don't respond. But in my mind, again, just like cutaneous manifestations of disease, I really believe that there's about a 40% um, unmet need. So with that, we've explored and uh, studied in clinical trials belibumab and more recently anafrolimab. Both have become approved um, for, by the FDA. Uh, Belibumab was the first drug to be approved, a new drug to be approved for lupus in 50 years after Plaquenil in the 50s, and anafrolimab just last year. So belibumab, as you may know, it targets B lymphocyte stimulator. It inhibits B lymphocyte proliferation and activation. And anafrolimab targets the interferon uh, receptor, which transmits signals uh, from type 1 interferon into cells. Um, so we'll talk about um, the successes we've had with, with these drugs and, uh, and uh, 
I'll try to convince you that they're exciting uh, agents to, to actually affect both that 40% unmet need in cutaneous and 40% unmet need in uh, musculoskeletal disease. So I talked about how hydroxychloroquine should be used as background therapy in all patients um, with lupus. It does a lot of things. Um, it's really effective in treating acute, mild, and moderate lupus symptoms, but there may be a slow onset in achieving control of patient symptoms. It may also serve as an, uh, a valuable adjunct to other therapies, but it, the thing that it really does well that no other drug that I know of does is help patients' fatigue, which is very common in lupus patients. It also has been shown, and there are lots of studies here that, that are outlined, it reduces flares, it um, reduces organ damage, it is associated with a reduction in lipids, it decreases thrombotic events, it decreases accelerated atherosclerosis, it decreases the onset of other autoimmune diseases, and it also triples the effect of mycophenolate mofetil in patients with uh, lupus nephritis. There's a um, a debate between rheumatologists, lupologists, and ophthalmologists about the dosing of this, and I don't think the answer is quite um, out yet. The ophthalmologists are, are um, driven by the need to be careful about um, ocular toxicity um, and have recommended that we, we uh, dose patients on a weight-based level uh, um, uh, regimen. And um, the problem with that is many cohorts um, have actually looked at the toxicity seen in their populations. And with yearly um, um, OCT and visual field testing, you actually have a very, we see very low um, uh, incident rates of uh, ocular toxicity, retinal toxicity, um, with 400 milligrams a day. Um, additionally, we don't know really what the, whether or not uh, at reduced doses we're seeing these safety um, signals with, that I just outlined. All those studies were done at 400 milligrams, and we really need to know what the effect is of lowering the dose, dosing patients by weight in terms of uh, avoiding complications and, and uh, these, these, uh, these effects that we see at 400 milligrams. We tend to use prednisone acutely while we're waiting for hydroxychloroquine and other drugs to take effect. But um, this, uh, the, this study from uh, Daphne Gladman, who has a very large cohort in Toronto, um, looked at damage that's been seen either directly or indirectly um, in patients with, uh, with prednisone, uh, chronic prednisone dosage. Um, generally speaking, these patients um, were on on average, 20 milligrams of prednisone. And you can see that there's accumulation of damage with time. On the x-axis, you'll see, you know, this is starts at less than one year and then goes to 15 years. And you can see most of the damage seen in about 40% of the patients is in the musculoskeletal system. And this is avascular necrosis and osteoporosis, but also ocular toxicity, mostly cataracts, central nervous system, delirium, depression, um, and other uh, uh, neuropsychiatric manifestations, skin atrophy. Um, these are all uh, things that are very damaging to the patient and of concern and really drives us um, as clinical um, investigators, which all three of us are, to really um, develop new drugs.
So um, about 10 years ago, Peggy Crow at Hospital for Special Surgery in New York um, showed studies that indicated that the innate immune response in lupus um, was, uh, which is particularly driven by type 1 interferon and particularly interferon alphas, um, it really seems to be the prime mediator and central driver of the immune response in lupus. And it's influenced by genetic and environmental factors, which are he listed here on the left. Um, and um, the susceptibility and, um, and actually flaring of lupus symptoms is really driven by the effect of interferon through toll-like receptor independent and endosomal um, TNF-dependent pathways and interferon-1 signaling pathways as well. You can see here on the, on the right that netosis, which are extracellular uh, traps of, of neutrophils, are activated through autoreactive T cells, and that actually can produce flares and a feedback loop to um, continue this cycle through, uh, through um, the adaptive um, dysregulation, or the innate, uh, further innate um, dysregulation, which then produces further um, adaptive uh, dysregulation. So with that in mind, um, we've kind of shifted our, our um, idea of, of how we really should target um, the new therapies uh, in, in, uh, for development of new approaches to lupus therapy. And um, we started with looking at downstream effects. We thought we, we kind of identified, Peggy outlined for us, you know, what effects interferon stimulation did to the B cells and the T cells. And we, had, we didn't have the technology to actually inhibit um, interferon quite yet. So early studies really focused on a lot of these targets, which are B cell um, surface um, targets, T cell surface targets, and co-stimulation between B and T cells. And here we've listed a lot of those, um, those pathways. There are some intracellular um, targets like VTK inhibitors on um, B cells and um, the JAK, STAT, um, T, uh, TRIC um, uh, sort of a approach a signaling pathways in the T cells. So the first set of data that um, was presented um, by Rich Fury about 10 years, 11 years ago now, which were uh, the Belivimab trial um, results. And Belivimab, like we said, was a B-cell uh, survival factor modulator. And what uh, Rich and, and his group showed um, just very quickly, um, and I won't go into a lot of detail because many of us have been using it for 10 years, really showed that there was a um, response that was uh, durable over 76 weeks. Um, and you see, you see actually the effect really maximizing at 52 weeks, but then it extended out to, um, to 76 weeks. And the, the solid line um, is, uh, is the um, 10 milligram per kilogram dosage. But it also um, had an effect on flares as well. So not only did it treat primarily the, uh, the disease that were present at the time it was initiated, but it also prevented severe flares. And this became a, a really wonderful alternative to, um, to uh, the other drugs that we had been using instead of it that really didn't have much of an effect, like um, methotrexate, um, luthalidomide, um, and, and others. These are um, the safety data 
um, over 76 weeks. And you can see that there are very few, there are very little differences between placebo, belivimab at low dose, and belivimab at higher dose, and certainly um, no significant signals with death. The problem with belibumab, though, is it tends to um, have a slow onset in mucocutaneous and, um, and articular manifestations of disease. But as Dr. Delaro will, say, will show you, that's not so, so true in the renal manifestations of disease, which we, I, I personally don't understand. But maybe Maria will have some insights on that. The next drug that I'd like to highlight is anaprolimab. So this is uh, following Peggy's suggestion that we should be looking at type 1 interferon overexpression in patients with active lupus. And so we have um, an inhibitor of type 1 interferon receptors that uh, was subjected to uh, um, testing in phase 2, which showed a positive response. Um, and then we did two phase 3 trials that um, were reported uh, last year, which showed confusing um, results. So in these two studies, TULIP-1 and TULIP-2, they were identically designed um, in ways to maximize uh, response. And um, the, the primary response was the SRI-4 response. So that was a dichotomous yes or no response in terms of how we characterize um, outcome and with no worsening of a more generous, if you will, outcome instrument that's not as dichotomous as, um, as the Selena Slide. So Selena Slide was a first pass, no worsening of bileg and no worsening of, of physician's global assessment. And in TULIP-1, we didn't achieve that response. But we did, we, we did actually see a response in the bileg, which is the other instrument, bileg, as a primary and no worsening of the uh, SLE day and no worsening of the physician's global assessment. So before we locked the data on uh, TULIP-2, which was done simultaneously a little bit, um, had a, late, a little bit of a later start, we changed the, with the FDA approval, we changed the primary outcome to, to BICLA, so no worsening of BILAG, and our the primary response was in the BILAG with no worsening of um, the uh, SLE day and no worsening in the PGA. And we did have a significant uh, um, difference between um, the, uh, the test drug and placebo. And all the key secondaries in TULIP-2 were also very impressive in terms of 50% um, reduction in swollen and tender joints, corticosteroid dose reduction um, to target, which was 7.5 milligrams a day, and improvement in the CLASI, which is a very detailed outcome instrument for cutaneous manifestations of disease. And with that, we um, went to the FDA and showed them th these data. We showed them that both the TULIP-1 and TULIP-2 um, achieved uh, the BICLA, and we also showed them a positive response um, for, um, for the phase two study, and they approved it. And interestingly, also, TULIP-2 had an SRI-4 response that was very impressive, where, where TULIP-1 didn't. So it was very confusing, but we're now using it. Um, so in terms of the safety profile of this drug, herpes zoster was more frequent in patients um, receiving anaphrolimab, but that seemed to be limited to the um, beginning of the, of the, of the uh, use of the drug. In long-term um, follow-up studies to four years, which I um, presented yesterday, we didn't really see it down the line um, in, the, uh, in, the, um, 
in the uh, long-term extension aspect of, of the trials. Tuberculosis, latent tuberculosis, and major cardiovascular events also are more frequent in the anifrolimab group in the beginning of the study, but not so much in the four years of follow-up. Um, and also, we did see um, some um, consistent slight increases of latent TB, but they were very, very um, not associated with in the long-term follow-up, but they weren't associated with overt tuberculosis. We also saw influenza, um, and that was just a, a minor increase over um, the uh, over the placebo group. Um, and in terms of COVID, which everybody was worried about, we did see three deaths in the pre um, in the pre-vaccine era, but after. Um, Patients had had introduction of vaccination and had adequate vaccination um, in terms of, you know, two vaccines. Uh, if that, well, that's Pfizer and Moderna were just two at the time. We only saw one adverse event, but no serious adverse events. So we think it's safe. Um, I think that patients should be um, immunized for herpes zoster, but I think that of everybody. And obviously they should be um, immunized against um, COVID. And lastly, in terms of new drugs, um, we have a TIC2 inhibitor that was just, uh, we, which was just um, uh, presented um, the other day in phase two, but not phase three. So we're, this is an early development still, and we see a good placebo, uh, good response compared to placebo um, at week 32. So this is very encouraging data. So stay tuned for that. And that, this is in the setting of bolibumab. Our, uh, yeah, bolivimab, another uh, in, uh, agent in this pathway um, family. Actually, it's a uh, it's a JAK inhibitor. Um, it did it worked in phase two, but not in phase three. So I'm a little cautious in in my enthusiasm for this, but hopeful. I'm going to actually skip this because I think Maureen has really um, addressed it adequately, and actually she's um, she's so um, she's so humble. She didn't talk about her being the uh, the driver behind the uh, non-protective HDL uh, risk of uh, seen in lupus patients. So, yeah, so she's actually talked about this, and she's talked about how we can reduce this risk. In terms of monitoring, um, we have to ensure that patients are adherent to their medication. Frequent visits really um, helps in that, in that way. Laboratory checks for toxicity and efficacy. I see patients at, at uh, three-month intervals to really check in with them, make sure that they're not having symptoms, and make sure that they don't have um, renal aspects of disease or hematologic aspects of disease, which can be silent you know, without the concomitant mucocutaneous or musculoskeletal or other symptoms. Um, I want to make sure that they're adherent to immunizations, and I force um, my, my uh, spiel on cardiovascular risk modification that I think is really important. Um, and, and lastly, disparities. You know, um, we, all these clinical trials that, we've, that I've talked about really are, are primarily done in uh, Caucasians, and minorities really are very hard to recruit. And I think that um, increased involvement of diverse populations in clinical trials is crucial. Um, cultural sensitivity um, is really important, and uh, not only for clinical trials and for drug development, but for adherence to those medications, taking those drugs and really sticking with them. Um, so how can we do this better? We can communicate better with our patients. Um, black patients have more severe lupus, and, um, and they, this, a survey that was done in this population 
felt that um, communication with their healthcare providers is, is hurried um, with use of difficult words. And an observational study has shown that persistent non-adherence is more common among black people and that there are potential areas of, of intervention have been really uh, brought to mind by, the, by our patients, and I think we need to take them to heart. In the University of Alabama has, um, has uh, implemented a um, decision aid for lupus that we're using. It's a multi-centered trial that we're using in our center, which um, is really an individualized, culturally appropriate, computerized decision-making aid for patients with lupus in 15 geographically diverse clinics. And it leads to really, I think, quality shared decision-making. So here's um, the patient that, uh, that Maureen um, described initially. She put the patient on Plaquenil. And uh, the patient still had um, symptoms. And at this point, the, about a year ago, I probably would have pay, put the patient on methotrexate if she was willing to not use alcohol and, uh, and use contraception. Um, but um, but uh, now I probably think about using um, anaprolimab. My goals here would be to optimize her Plaquenil. So if she's not doing well, um, I would probably think about going to 400 milligrams if her ocular testing was, uh, was uh, reasonable and she was adherent to following closely with um, her ophthalmologist, and I would really aim to taper the prednisone. And with that, I'm going to pass it on to Dr. Delara. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Ken and Maureen. It's great to be with you all here today. Thank you for sticking around to the very end of the conference. Uh, we really appreciate it. I think you're going to get a lot out of this session. I know I've been learning a lot. I think it's been a great meeting so far. All right. So I'm going to be focusing on lupus nephritis. So as you know, Kidney involvement is very common in lupus. In fact, it's one of the most common of the organ-threatening manifestations of lupus. Up to 60% of our patients with adult-onset lupus will develop lupus nephritis, and up to 80 to 90% of our pediatric-onset lupus patients will develop lupus nephritis. So this is a population that I particularly am very careful with and maybe even screen them more often than my adult patients uh, because of su the, such a high prevalence of lupus nephritis. Just like any severe organ-threatening manifestation of lupus, lupus nephritis typically occurs in the first three to five years of the disease, but it actually can occur anytime. I have a patient that I just diagnosed 20 years into her disease. So we still have to continue to screen for lupus nephritis, but it typically will present in the beginning of the disease course. And the presentation is highly variable. It can be completely subclinical. So you pick it up in your clinic because you're measuring routine urine protein to creatinine ratios every three months, urinalysis, you're checking the serum creatinine. But sometimes it can be the presenting manifestation of lupus and patients will come in with rapidly progressive glomerulonephritis, admission to the hospital, workup, and then it turns out to be lupus. And it's associated with significant morbidity and mortality, which we will talk about in the next slides. As was mentioned earlier, we know that there is a racial and ethnic disparity in lupus incidence and prevalence, and also the onset of severe manifestations of lupus. So these are our data from the 
our CDC-funded California Lupus Surveillance Project. This is a population-based registry of lupus patients throughout the San Francisco Bay Area. We have 724. You see that this is a racially, ethnically diverse population. And what you can see here is an increased prevalence of lupus nephritis in non-white populations with prevalence ratios adjusted for, for sex and a time of diagnosis of, of lupus and duration of diagnosis increased prevalence ratios in non-white patients. And on the right, you see here the Kaplan-Meier analysis of time to incident lupus nephritis. And on the top, you see is the white population here. And the non-white populations you can see here have an increased risk of developing lupus nephritis with the earliest age of onset, if you can see here in this Asian Pacific Islander group. This is quite striking. But as we talked about earlier, the greatest risk of developing new lupus nephritis is in that first year. And these are data from our California Lupus Epidemiology Study. Again, this recapitulates this concept that the prevalence of lupus nephritis is higher in non-white populations. Why is this? Well, we're trying to understand this. We know that there are some genetic polymorphisms that are more likely to to cause progression to chronic kidney disease in non-white populations. For example, the, the high-risk APOL1 risk variant, also FC gamma receptor 2A variants, particularly in African ancestry patients, which predispose them to increased risk of CKD if they develop lupus nephritis. However, there are a variety of other social determinants of health that we're trying to understand in our studies and how those issues, as you can see here, education disparities, income inequality, perhaps living in an area where there might be more pollution, um, and of course, access to healthcare, how those interact with these genetic polymorphisms to lead to more disease progression. So we're trying to understand these issues um, at a very, on a very granular fashion. Hopefully, we'll have more information year after year to try to understand this issue so we can understand how to intervene to prevent progression to end-stage kidney disease. Mortality is increased in patients with lupus nephritis. Probably comes as no surprise to anyone, but these are data from CC Mox cohort in China in which he looked at almost 700 patients with lupus, 368 with lupus nephritis. You see the mean age was 33, follow-up about 10 years. And these are the age and sex-adjusted hazard ratios for mortality in patients with lupus with lupus nephritis compared to lupus without lupus nephritis. And you can see here the hazard ratio, so the increased risk of, lupus uh, of mortality in patients with lupus nephritis compared to just lupus. And particularly, look at this, end-stage kidney disease, hazard ratio for mortality of nine. So this is a highly morbid and mortal condition that we have to diagnose early and treat aggressively for so we can prevent these types of outcomes. And um, in this publication, they also show these life expectancy curves, which also I think are quite telling. And you can see here at the very bottom, the, the, the lowest life expectancy, the shortest life expectancy, patients with lupus with renal damage. So again, just showing that we have to diagnose early, treat early, treat appropriately, prevent kidney damage so we can prevent this early mortality that is seen. And this is a very nice study of 18,000 patients with lupus nephritis. And this is looking at the risk of end-stage kidney disease 
And you can see here on the top, these are developed countries, the bottom are developing, five, 10-year, 15 risks of end-stage kidney disease. And what you can just see by just eyeballing this is from the, from the late 70s to about the mid-90s, we saw a reduction in risk of end-stage kidney disease in patients with lupus nephritis. But then you see this plateau. Now, what's interesting is this only goes out to 210. So we're going to talk later. We now have two newly approved therapies for the treatment of lupus nephritis. And I think our hope is that these newly approved therapies are going to impact this and hopefully decrease the progression to end-stage kidney disease. But these are striking numbers. If you look here, a patient diagnosed with class 4 lupus nephritis with a 10-year risk of end-stage kidney disease of 33%. And you think about that patient being diagnosed when they're 18 years old. By the age of 28, they're going to, they have a third of a risk of being in... Um, end-stage kidney disease, this is striking. And again, hopefully we're going to be able to impact these numbers with our new therapies. I think that we will. So that, that, that's all background to say that I think that it is time to reevaluate our treatment approach for lupus nephritis. And for the past two decades, our conventional strategy, you know, since the, the old NIH studies of the 1970s has been to start treatment with glucocorticoids and one immunosuppressive agent, also hydroxychloroquine, to achieve a renal response, and then we escalate therapy if our patients are not responding the way we expect them to respond or if they're flaring. But I would, I would submit to you that, th that there should be a new approach now that we have these newly developed therapies that we're going to talk about, more of a step-down approach, that we start with combination therapy and we step it down over the course of time as we achieve a renal response. We already are doing this in rheumatoid arthritis, but we are just behind in lupus because we haven't had a lot of approved targeted therapies for this disease. What is the rationale? Well, we talked about this already, that we have significant limitations to the way we've been doing things. I'm not going to go through all of these because we just showed them. I showed you the increased mortality, the increased risk of end-stage kidney disease. And the last bullet here I think is very important that we've seen now from trial data that combination therapy is effective and well-tolerated. We're going to go through those data. I like to show this slide as well, just for us all to remind ourselves why it's important to, to diagnose and treat early. So this is GFR on the y-axis and age on the x-axis. And this blue line is the, is the amount of GFR that we all lose, that the healthy population loses with age. The normal lifespan of all of our kidneys is about 120 years, which is plenty for our lifespan. However, in orange, you see a patient who develops one episode of lupus nephritis. Just one episode will lead to renal parenchymal mass loss, reduction in GFR, and then they follow the trajectory of a person without lupus. But look here in this other line, this darker line, multiple flares of lupus nephritis, destruction of kidney parenchyma, and they reach end-stage kidney disease at the age of 60. Remember that there are many mechanisms that lead to kidney damage and lupus nephritis, but two that I want you to remember is that acute inflammatory insult from that flare of lupus nephritis leads to parenchymal damage, loss, fibrosis, and then also proteinuria itself is toxic 
to the tubular interstitium. It gets reabsorbed by the proximal tubular epithelial cells and can cause acute kidney injury as well as chronic kidney injury. And this is why it's important to get that proteinuria down as quickly as possible. What about the guidelines? So here are uh, the 2019 updated guidelines from ULAR EREDTA. These were published just before belimumab and voclosporin were approved for lupus nephritis. But I what I want to show you here is this concept that we are moving towards using lower doses of steroids to treat our lupus nephritis patients. And we're moving towards a situation where we're using upfront pulse methylprednisolone to get rid of that acute inflammatory insult, suppress that inflammation, and then we can start at a lower dose of oral steroids. And for the first time, what you can see here is they mention the combination of mycophenolate and a calcineurin inhibitor as a potential first-line therapy. KDGO was published um, right after the um, approval of belimumab and voclosporin, and you see belimumab is listed here. And calcineurin inhibitors with voclosporin are listed here as potential first-line agents. So here are the new therapies that I just mentioned, belimumab and voclosporin. And here is the timeline for belimumab's approval. And remember, uh, we'll be talking about lupus nephritis here in the Bliss Lupus Nephritis trial. And here it is. This was the pivotal phase three trial that led to the approval of belimumab for lupus nephritis. This is the largest lupus nephritis trial ever performed, 448 participants, three, four, and or pure class five. And you see here the study design with, it, with um, patients came in and at the discretion of the investigator, they could be started on background urolupus, cyclophosphamide to azathioprine or MMF. And then at day zero, they were randomized to belimumab or placebo, and the primary endpoint was at week 104. And here's the primary endpoint. This is the primary efficacy renal response. Proteinuria had to be down to 0.7. And you see that there, a greater proportion of patients in the belimumab group versus placebo met that primary endpoint, and it was statistically significant. And these are also important data. These were pre-specified secondary analyses. And you can see here, this is PERR by visit. And what's interesting is belimumab in blue and placebo in orange, you see differentiation of the curve starting at about week 24. And we think that's because um, that's when steroids had to be tapered down. So steroids had to be down to 10 milligrams a day by week 24. And so you start to see this nice differentiation with this sustained response with belimumab. And we see that as well with a complete renal response. Um, and here you see time to PERR and time to CRR. This is a very important slide as well. And this is also a pre-specified analysis looking at time to renal-related event or death. And you see what these are, renal worsening, treatment-related failure. And you can see that uh, belimumab is in blue. There's a decreased risk of renal-related event or death. Subgroups, I'm just going to say subgroup analysis favored belimumab for most of them, but you see that there was no efficacy seen here in the pure class fives. And then this is also very important. I think that many of us were surprised by these data, but we're so pleasant, we're, we're pleased by them. And that is that belimumab you see here in blue compared to placebo seems to have a protective effect on EGFR. That in both of these groups, we saw a reduction in EGFR over time, but there was less of a reduction in the belimumab group. So that is really helpful information for many of us to think about that this is gonna have, I think, a benefit over the long term of the, over the health of the kidney.
And um, these are some more analyses here showing that belimumab uh, reduced time to first lupus nephritis flare no matter which subgroup you looked at and also reduced the risk of a decrease in EGFR. And that goes along with what I showed you earlier in that it reduced flare. So if you reduce flare, you reduce progression to, to, to CKD. One more important uh, post-talk analysis that was done is it seems that the efficacy of belimumab was seen most clearly in patients who came in with lower levels of proteinuria, so less than three. In patients who came in with nephrotic range proteinuria, we didn't see as much efficacy of belimumab over placebo. Let's move on to voclosporin in the next 10 minutes. And I think I, what's important to mention here is the unique mechanism of action of this class of medications, that there are two distinct mechanisms. The first is the immunologic mechanism that we're all familiar with, where by inhibiting calcineurin, we reduce transcription of a variety of pro-inflammatory cytokines, predominantly IL-2, and that's why you see the specific effect on T cells, on, on reduction of T cell activation, proliferation, differentiation. But importantly... Uh, by inhibiting calcineurin, there's also a protective effect on synaptopodin, which is a very important protein that maintains the structural integrity of the podocyte foot process. And we think that it's the mechanism on the podocyte that leads to that rapid reduction of proteinuria that we see when we use calcineurin inhibitors. So remember that, two mechanisms of action. And this just shows us, to remind us, that podocytes are absolutely critical to the structural integrity of that glomerulus. And as podocytes start to fall off, we start to, you start to develop glomerular sclerosis and loss of kidney function. It's also important to remember the specific nephrotoxicities that we see with calcineurin inhibitors. And I just want to mention um, that it's very, you know, we expect to see an acute nephrotoxicity when you start a CNI you see the slight bump in serum creatinine initially, and that is because these agents cause vasoconstriction of the afferent arterial. So this is a known mechanism of these drugs. So remember that and, and look for that. There's a more ominous uh, toxicity, which is this chronic nephrotoxicity, where we can see changes to the glomeruli as well as this striped interstitial fibrosis, this patchy interstitial fibrosis. This is particularly worrisome because this limits how long we can treat with these agents. We don't actually know how long we're going to be able to treat, but this is something in the, in the back of our minds to think about. So coming on to voclosporin, this is the next generation calcineurin inhibitor, and it's structurally identical to, uh, to cyclosporin, except for this one methyl group here on amino acid one. That is the difference. And this makes this agent much more potent than cyclosporin and also gives it a more predictable pharmacokinetic profile such that you don't have to check drug levels with this particular drug. Here's the Aurora Phase 3. And here, so similar to, to belimumab, class 3, 4, or pure class 5. Uh, here you can see that the threshold for EGFR to get enrolled in this trial was 45 what makes this trial very unique is the low doses of steroids that were used. And so participants were given two pulses of methylprednisolone, and then they were started at 25 milligrams a day of prednisone, and they had to be down to 2.5 milligrams a day by week 16. And patients were randomized to voclosporin or placebo on a background of MMF 
of two grams a day. So not three grams a day, but a lower dose of two grams a day. Here are the results. You can see here, this is week 52. So the belimumab trial was week 104. This is week 102. Uh, I'm sorry, this is week 52. And you can see here that there was a significant difference between voclosporin and control in the rate of a renal response, which was quite, quite significant, as you can see here. A nice rate of renal response with voclosporin. Subgroup analysis favored voclosporin, but again, interestingly, we did not see statistical significance in the pure class 5. And of course, subgroup analyses we have to take with a grain of salt because the trial was not powered to detect efficacy in these subgroup analyses. So I look at subgroup analyses like this as being exploratory, but they can help me think about how to choose agents for my patient in, in clinic, but remember that these are exploratory. And this shows you the rapid response in terms of proteinuria. Here we see uh, voclosporin in blue and the control group in orange, and you see this rapid reduction in proteinuria. That happens within days. And again, we think that's because of the direct effect on the podocytes. And here, these data were presented. Um, these are the 36-month results. So after the 52 weeks was finished, Patients were given the opportunity to continue in a blinded extension for two more years. And these data were presented um, actually recently at another meeting, but also here um, by Christina Ahrens at this, at this meeting. And you can see here that over time, there was continued reduction of proteinuria. And then I thought that this was reassuring data. We worry about the EGFR over the long term, because I, I mentioned to you about the chronic nephrotoxicity. But what you can see here is over the course of the two years of the blinded extension, we did not see continued falling of the EGFR. It stabilized. And in fact, at the end, it was similar to control. This is reassuring. That being said, we are waiting for the repeat kidney biopsy data from this trial. So I, I think about 20 patients underwent repeat kidney biopsies, and we want to make sure that we're not seeing any evidence of that chronic nephrotoxicity over the long term. Because again, the question in our mind is, how are we going to use this agent in the clinic? Do we use it for one year? Do we use it for two years? What is going to be the duration? And how do we think about this also integrating in with belimumab, which we know belimumab has an extraordinary safety profile that's gone back for over 11 years, as Dr. Clunian talked about. So here's the safety profile that I mentioned. Both of these trials looked good, but again, the big unknown that I mentioned here is the CNI-associated nephrotoxicity. So putting it all together, I, I looked, you know, I delved into the data from these, from these trials to kind of think about what can we take home? What are some practical tips to use in the clinic? So you can just have this with you. Um, that these are some ideas about when you may use belimumab first, when you may use voclosporin first. And so, for example, if a patient has a severe, you know, reduction in EGFR, they have CKD, they have chronic changes the, on the biopsy, that's not a patient that I would want to start on a calcineurin inhibitor. So that would be a patient that belimumab would be favored. Lower levels of proteinuria belimumab, history of major infections belimumab because we know of the safety profile. In contrast, if a patient comes in with very high levels of proteinuria, and we want to get that proteinuria down because I showed you that proteinuria is toxic to the renal tubules, 
we may want to start with Voclosporin first, and then belimumab might be later as a maintenance agent. So there's different ways that we can use these therapies in a biologically rational way based upon their mechanism of action. So these are disparities. So Dr. Clooney actually already mentioned this. This is the decision aid that was uh, developed by the University of Alabama, Jazz Zing and colleagues to help um, patients of, of non-white races and ethnicities to try to understand many of these decisions about which of these treatments is, is right for them. This was done in a very culturally appropriate way. It's an excellent decision aid, and you'll be hearing more about this over the course of time. Okay, so this is back to our case, and um, Dr. McMahon and Dr. Clooney already went through this case, but look what happens. She now is coming in with nocturia, puffy eyes, and swollen feet and ankles. So right away, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I wonder if she has developed lupus nephritis. She's a known lupus patient. She's already being treated, and now she comes in with these new symptoms and signs. What do I do? On exam, she's hypertensive, so that's also another, another ominous sign. And in terms of her laboratories, we get a urinalysis, which shows an active sediment. She has a spot urine protein to creatinine ratio of four. We get a kidney biopsy, because remember, the kidney biopsy is essential to diagnosing lupus nephritis because there are mimickers. It's not good enough just to have those, those, um, the urinalysis findings and the protein you have to get the kidney biopsy to make the diagnosis. And sure enough, she has class four and five with high activity, some chronicity, no vascular abnormalities. And we're just going to end here. What do we do for her? So I think the, the, the wonderful thing now in 2022 is we have choices that we didn't have before, right? For the past two decades, we've been using medications that were not FDA approved for lupus nephritis. And now we have therapies that are. And I think we have some decisions in front of us. Do we start with conventional therapy or do we start with combination? I would like to submit to you that we should be moving towards thinking about starting with combination therapy because we have to do better and improve outcomes in our patients. Um, and then there are some parts of the world where they cannot get belimumab or baclosporin. I, was just, I just saw David Eisenberg yesterday who I presented with. They can't get these agents, so they, but they can get B cell depletion. So that might be an option for some parts of the world. And then lastly, the glucocorticoid dose, just to remember that the guidelines have changed. And those high, high doses that we used to use for 20 years, we don't need to use those. We've learned that from clinical trials. So lower doses are, are, are the way to go. And somehow, miraculously, we finished on time. Exactly. So we can now, we can now take questions. <laughs> Thank you both for those great presentations. Um, we do have a couple of questions that have come in. Uh, the first one is for me, actually. Um, should the increased risk of cardiovascular disease impact our choice of therapy for lupus nephritis? And if so, what's my favorite option? Um, so, of course, we don't have any studies that really can demonstrate a decreased uh, cardiovascular risk with any of our lupus therapies. Um, I will mention that we did um, do some work um, with uh, Emily Liang, who was a medical student and is now a resident, 
um, uh, when she was working with us um, looking at our patient cohort. And we do know that um, mycophenolate actually can show some improvements in some of the inflammatory uh, lipid biomarkers that, um, that we've been working on in our lab, as Dr. Kalunian mentioned. Um, so of course, that's not a cardiovascular endpoint. It's really just a biomarker, but um, something to think about. Um, now, what we don't have is any data on some of the newer biologic therapies that, uh, that Maria was talking about um, and how those will impact cardiovascular risk. So again, I think it's really important. Um, a lot of these patients with uh, nephritis will have dyslipidemias, will have hypertension, um, other things that should be managed to overall decrease that cardiovascular risk. Uh, next question, how would you manage a patient with lupus who develops end-stage renal disease on dialysis and still has lupus flares? Yes, Maria Alba. Great. This is, this is such an important question. So I can say when I was training eons ago, I was taught that when a lupus patient, if they unfortunately reached end-stage kidney disease and they were on dialysis, I was taught that their lupus was quiescent. Well, we know that's not true. I have many patients in my clinic that are on, you know, unfortunately waiting for kidney transplant. They are on renal replacement therapy, and they continue to have active extra-renal manifestations. I have one patient that has really bad serositis, not from end-stage kidney, but from her lupus. I have patients that have, continue to have arthritis. I have another one with rash. So I think this is a very good question. And so what I do in these patients is I work with my nephrologist to choose medications and to, and to figure out how to dose them appropriately in the setting of, of dialysis. And so I use, you know, I, we use mycophenolate, we use azathioprine. We don't use uh, methotrexate because that can build up to, to very toxic levels in this setting. We use belimumab. I haven't yet used anaphrolumab, but I don't see why not. Um, uh, we, wouldn't, we would not use voclosporin, of course, in this patient, but we wouldn't have to because this patient already reached end-stage kidney disease. And so we really use the same medications um, that we use in the setting um, of, of not being an end-stage kidney, but I just work closely with my nephrologist, again, to get the dosing right in terms of the dialysis intervals. And whether they're on hemodialysis or peritoneal dialysis, I'm just very careful with that. But we do see this, and it was a, it was a myth that we were all taught way back in the day that these patients are quiescent because many of them are not. Okay, um, I have another question for you, Maria. Do you anticipate, anticipate that the Aurora 2 data will have an impact on prescribing such as a longer duration of treatment, I think? Let's see. Do you anticipate the Aurora 2 data to have an impact on prescribing? Okay, great question. Yes. So I think what, so the Aurora 2, remember, was the blinded two-year extension after the Aurora 1, because the Aurora 1 stopped at 52 weeks, and now we have two additional years. And I think it, it will. So I think what, I, what, we took, what we took home from that extension was, I think the most important was, that there was a continued suppression of proteinuria. Of course, patients were still taking baclosporin, so I would expect that, that they'd have suppression of proteinuria. But the EGFR data, in my mind, was particularly helpful. So remember the curves that I showed, you saw this initial reduction in EGFR, which again, as I mentioned, we expect because of that vasoconstriction of the afferent arterial. 
But what was very reassuring was the EGFR kind of stayed flat. If anything, improved at the end. I'm not sure exactly why that was, but that's reassuring to me. So yes, the answer is I do think it will have an impact. But as I mentioned, many of us still want to see that repeat kidney biopsy data because you can have a, a fairly normal EGFR, but still have significant uh, chronicity on the biopsy, right? Because we know that as we lose kidney mass and we develop these chronic changes in the kidney, what we see is glomerular hyperfiltration that compensates for that. So a patient can seem to have a normal EGFR for a while, even when they've had significant damage to the kidney. So we want to see that repeat kidney biopsy trial data to be perfectly reassured. But I think that, yes, this is giving me some more reassurance that maybe the interval to use this drug is for, you know, again, one, two years, maybe even three years. We have to see how this plays out. But I do think that we have to think about how to use our therapies in combination, but also in sequence um, at different phases of the lupus nephritis. There are going to be some drugs that are better for the beginning to get that proteinuria down and suppress that acute inflammation. And some drugs can be used for years in the maintenance phase to prevent flares. And we have to start thinking, I think, mechanistically like that. Okay, um, Ken, uh, here's one for you. Was anaphrolimab as effective in interferon high uh, compared to interferon low uh, patients? Yeah, so that's a uh, very interesting question, right? It actually goes back to uh, about 10 years ago, no more than that, um, when I presented the rotulizumab data, which is another interferon-targeted therapy. Um, it was a, uh, a phase two trial that uh, showed that um, the interferon low population actually did better than the interferon high population, and we didn't really have a good explanation for that. The problem was we only had one um, rontolizumab dosage that we used, and my theory was that it wasn't, we, it was just a dosing effect, and perhaps if we had used a higher dose, we would have had a better response. So um, I think that uh, we don't know the answer to this. I mean, the data shows that interferon-high patients do respond a little bit better, but it really depends on, um, you know, what the ceiling is for um, defining interferon low versus high, and it also probably depends on, like Maria was um, suggesting, the, the state of the disease. There may be a burst of interferon that precedes the disease, and and maybe it stays low with, we really don't know. Concomitant therapy may affect it, especially, you know, steroids and whatnot. So it's really an unclear thing. And I think it's something that we really need to, uh, to really delve into for precision decision-making purposes. Um, I'll take the next question. There's a question on diagnosing rupus in patients. Um, so rupus is what we call patients that we think really have an overlap between rheumatoid arthritis uh, and lupus. And I think that some of the things that um, would make me call someone rupus as opposed to just lupus arthritis, um, we traditionally think of lupus arthritis as being non-erosive, um, although it can be deforming. Those deformities uh, in lupus uh, are usually reducible. Um, so if I do see a patient who has evidence of erosions, um, that's when I would give them the diagnosis of rupus. Um, and in those patients, I probably tend to use uh, things like methotrexate a little bit more frequently. Um, 
Dr. Kalumi, we'll give you this one. What are the key clinical or lab indicators to show it's time to add a biologic? <laughs> That's a difficult question. <laughs> um, you know, I don't think we have those, but I think it's all clinical judgment, really. Um, I think that uh, if you have a patient who's not responding to whatever you're using, um, I think you need to probably escalate their therapy, right? And, and I think the decision is um, what's most appropriate for the patient. Um, is it a biologic or is it a non-biologic? And really, it's just up to you, given the data that you have at hand. Um, I think that, um, you know, this, obviously, that's my thinking for non-nephritis patients, but obviously, um, uh, nephritis patients is a little bit different. Um, I think that, as Maria suggested, um, our approach to lupus nephritis is evolving, right? And and I think not only are we um, beset with this question, but it's also a question of when we change biologic agents. And Maria's um, hinted to the fact that maybe we want to use vulcosporin and nephritis earlier and when we really want to get the steroid effect um, um, down and we also want to get the proteinuria down, right? And maybe later, when we, if we want it with the biopsies that are going to come out of um, the uh, Aurora 2 are suggestive that we are actually seeing fibrosis, maybe we want to avoid that fibrotic effect early and, and then move on to bolivimab. So there are a lot of decision-making points that we need to clarify as a group, um, and we need to really understand um, this a lot better. So I'll throw this one out to, to all of us. Um, uh, someone commented that they recently diagnosed an 80-year-old male with biopsy-proven lupus nephritis. Has anyone else seen this late onset? Go ahead, Maria. <laughs> sure. So this is interesting. So the answer is yes, I've definitely seen it. Um, but this would give me some pause, right? So we want to make sure that we want to we will rule out a perineoplastic situation. And so hopefully that patient has had age-appropriate cancer screening because we want to make sure that there's nothing else that triggered this. Um, but this is a, it, it, we do see this. It's unusual. It's unusual. Remember about 50, 15% of patients will be diagnosed with lupus after the age of 60. And so um, what's interesting is, is, you know, was this 80-year-old man just also recently diagnosed with lupus, or did he have lupus for 20 years and then develop lupus nephritis? But the answer is, yes, I've seen it. But again, I have to, my antennae are up, right? When you start to see a patient who's older like this, who develops this type of inflammatory syndrome, you have to think about, is there a malignancy that I'm missing? Um, and, but I think it's, it's, it's great that you got the biopsy um, because the biopsy is going gonna, is gonna to give you the answer in terms of lupus nephritis. You rule out malignancy, and then you have to figure out how to, how to treat this patient. But uh, long-winded way of saying that, yes, I have seen it. Yeah, I've seen it too. I've seen it in a patient who um, retrospectively um, had anti double stranded DNAs um, because he actually did have um, some su suggestion of lupus in, in, in his 20s. And um, he wasn't actually 80, but he was like maybe 70. And I think w it was right when the double stranded DNA assay came out. And, and it was actually um, a very interesting case. His, his symptoms were uh, articular in nature, and he had an ANA and double stranded DNA. He never went back because to the doctor about it because he really had quiescence of his symptoms. And uh, with time, um, you know, he, he didn't have a malignancy, but um, I always wondered if he had an interferonopathy of some sort um, that uh, never really got diagnosed. But unfortunately, he died. 
He also developed psychosis um, after we gave him prednisone quickly after, and, uh, and um, I'm not quite sure why he died, but uh, it was a very interesting case. But those were my concerns, very similar to Maria's. Okay, great. Well, it looks like we're out of time, um, but thank you to everyone in the audience for being here today and for all your great, great questions. Um, and thanks to my fellow panelists for Thank great you session. so much. Thanks so much. Thank you. Um, I'll take the next question. There's a question on diagnosing rupus in patients. Um, so rupus is what we call patients that we think really have an overlap between rheumatoid arthritis uh, and lupus. And I think that some of the things that um, would make me call someone rupus as opposed to just lupus arthritis, um, we traditionally think of lupus arthritis as being non-erosive, um, although it can be deforming. Those deformities uh, in lupus uh, are usually reducible. Um, so if I do see a patient who has evidence of erosions, um, that's when I would give them the diagnosis of rupus. Um, and in those patients, I probably tend to use uh, things like methotrexate a little bit more frequently. Um, Dr. Kaluni, we'll give you this one. What are the key clinical or lab indicators to show it's time to add a biologic? <laughs> That's a difficult question. <laughs> um, you know, I don't think we have those, but I think it's all clinical judgment, really. Um, I think that uh, if you have a patient who's not responding to whatever you're using, um, I think you need to probably escalate their therapy, right? And, and I think the decision is um, what's most appropriate for the patient. Um, is it a biologic or is it a non-biologic? And really, it's just up to you, given the data that you have at hand. Um, I think that, um, you know, this, yeah, obviously, that's my thinking for non-nephritis patients, but obviously, um, uh, nephritis patients is a little bit different. Um, I think that, as Maria suggested, um, our approach to lupus nephritis is evolving, right? And and I think not only are we um, beset with this question, but it's also a question of when we change biologic agents. And Maria's um, hinted to the fact that maybe we want to use vocalsporin and nephritis earlier and when we really want to get the steroid effect um, um, down and we also want to get the proteinuria down, right? And maybe later when we, if we want it with the biopsies that are going to come out of um, the uh, Aurora 2 are suggestive that we are actually seeing fibrosis, maybe we want to avoid that fibrotic effect early and, and then move on to bolivimab. So there are a lot of decision-making points that we need to clarify as a group, um, and we need to really understand um, this a lot better. So I'll throw this one out to, to all of us. Um, uh, someone commented that they recently diagnosed an 80-year-old male with biopsy-proven lupus nephritis. Has anyone else seen this late onset? Go ahead, Maria. <laughs> sure. So this is interesting. So the answer is yes, I've definitely seen it. Um, but this would give me some pause, right? So we want to make sure that we want to we will rule out a perineoplastic situation. And so hopefully that patient has had age-appropriate cancer screening because we want to make sure that there's nothing else that triggered this. Um, but this is a, it, it, we do see this. It's unusual. It's unusual. Remember about 50, 15% of patients will be diagnosed with lupus after the age of 60. And so um, what's interesting is, is, you know, was this 80-year-old man just also recently diagnosed with lupus, or did he have lupus for 20 years and then develop lupus nephritis? But 
The answer is, yes, I've seen it, but again, I have to, my antennae are up, right? When you start to see a patient who's older like this, who develops this type of inflammatory syndrome, you have to think about, is there a malignancy that I'm missing? Um, and, but I think it's, it's, it's great that you got the biopsy um, because the biopsy is gonna, is gonna give you the answer in terms of lupus nephritis. You rule out malignancy, and then you have to figure out how to, how to treat this patient. But uh, long-winded way of saying that, yes, I have seen it. Yeah, I've seen it too. I've seen it in a patient who um, retrospectively um, had anti double stranded DNAs um, because he actually did have um, some su suggestion of lupus in, in, in his 20s. And um, he wasn't actually 80, but he was like maybe 70. And I think w it was right when the double stranded DNA assay came out. And, and it was actually um, a very interesting case. His, his symptoms were uh, articular in nature, and he had an ANA and double stranded DNA. He never went back because, to the doctor about it because he really had quiescence of his symptoms. And uh, with time, um, you know, he, he didn't have a malignancy, but um, I always wondered if he had an interferonopathy of some sort um, that uh, never really got diagnosed. But unfortunately, he died. He also developed psychosis um, after we gave him prednisone quickly after. And, uh, and um, I'm not quite sure why he died, but uh, it was a very interesting case. But those were my concerns, very similar to Maria's. Okay, great. Well, it looks like we're out of time, um, but thank you to everyone in the audience for being here today and for all your great, great questions. Um, and thanks to my fellow panelists for Thank great you session. so much. Thanks so much. Thank you. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash TSR 860. This educational activity is supported by an educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline.